All right, now I invite you to take out your scriptures and turn to John chapter 8. John 8, beginning in verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Then Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Thus ends the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your name. We thank you for the privilege of calling upon you through Christ. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We pray, Lord, now that as your word is opened and proclaimed, that you would bless the proclamation of your word. Lord, we pray that you would shape us more into the likeness of Christ. We pray that any who don't know you would be convicted of their sin and would be brought to you. Father, we pray that you would bless now this word as it goes forth. Lord, may it accomplish the purpose for which you sent it and not return to you void. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue again in John. We are in chapter 8, uh, taking our time through this lengthy dialogue between Jesus and the Jews. Uh, here, picking up, following the statement from Christ uh, that he is the light of the world, as we just sang about as well. Uh, Jesus has warned his hearers, verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. As we covered last week, this phrase, I am he, was really just a statement, I am. We then traced this usage through Isaiah, the use of this phrase through Isaiah and back to Exodus 3. The Jews then responded by asking Jesus, well, who are you? Jesus responds, and this will bring us to our text this morning. You can read with me here. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So Jesus indeed has much to say about them. And given how far they presently are from God, from believing God, if Christ does speak about them, it will inevitably be words of judgment. And even in this, Christ's words would be true, again, for he speaks in accordance with his Father's will. As is common, the, the Jews, uh, Jesus' audience here, missed what he was saying. Verse 27 says, They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. 
So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. When he is lifted up, then they will know these things. So what does it mean for the Son of Man to be lifted up? Well, let's break down this phrase. Firstly, we see that Son of Man was Jesus' favorite phrase, his favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospels. And whenever he's speaking about himself in the third person, uh, this is the phrase he uses most often, Son of Man. Now, as we covered when we looked at this phrase in John 5, the background to this phrase is most likely Daniel 7. We see it also in Ezekiel. If you've read through Ezekiel, you'll see it is all over the book of Ezekiel. Uh, God constantly calls Ezekiel son of man. Um, And there are some who will argue that Jesus may have been drawing from Ezekiel, comparing his life to the ministry of Ezekiel in some way. Um, But I believe there is a much stronger case that Daniel 7 is the proper background to this phrase, as Daniel 7 is a messianic text. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So with this background, Son of Man is seen as a messianic title, right? A a title talking about the Messiah, uh, what he would do and what he would receive. So by using this phrase, Jesus is identifying himself as that one in Daniel 7, the one who would come up to the Ancient of Days and receive this everlasting dominion, this eternal kingdom that he would be served by all peoples, languages, and nations, have a kingdom That would never be destroyed. Now, the way, however, that Jesus would receive this kingdom, the way in which the Son of Man will be lifted up, the way he will be exalted, as we'll see, will be through the cross. That comes through clearly John 3, 14. You can turn back with me to that passage. John 3, 14, the discussion Jesus has with Nicodemus where he says this, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus says, uh, references back to the story, uh, if you remember that story, the people had sinned by grumbling against God, and God punished their murmuring, their grumbling, by sending a plague of deadly snakes among the people. And so the people were being bitten by these snakes and were dying. And so they cried out to God for mercy. And God told Moses to make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. And then if anyone was bit by a snake, they were to look to that bronze serpent and they would be healed of their snake bite. And so Jesus takes that story as an analogy of what he is going to do. He says, just as the serpent was lifted up, so that those who looked to it could have life, so also the Son of Man 
would be lifted up, that those who look to him would have eternal life. So D.A. Carson notes that when this phrase, the Son of Man, be lifted up, when that phrase appears in John, it always combines the notions of being physically lifted up on the cross with the notion of exaltation. Carson writes, This is a theological adaptation of the literal to lift up and the figurative to enhance. Uh, He says both of these are in view. The physical meaning to lift up, that Christ would be lifted up on the cross. And also that uh, the figurative meaning, right, to exalt, to lift up in that way. He says these are tied together in John, both the physical lifting and also the figurative lifting, right, exalting. As we sing, lift high the name of Jesus. So in John's gospel, uh, when this phrase is used, both of these meanings are in view. And so this is a truth that is both beautiful and appears to have been completely scandalous to the Jews of Jesus' day. They were not expecting a suffering Messiah. But we see that the way in which the Messiah would conquer, the way that he would ultimately be exalted, would be through suffering, death, and ultimately resurrection. We see this from 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, Paul says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says the idea of Christ crucified, of the Messiah being crucified, dying, suffering, was just a stumbling block to the Jews. That was not what they were expecting. The Messiah did not come to lead an army against the Romans. He did not come to conquer through military force. The enemies that he had to face could not be defeated with a sword or a spear. But we see it was through the cross through death and resurrection that Christ conquered. As we read this morning in Sunday school, that through death he might defeat the one who had the power of death. And we see as well that this was, in fact, prophesied. Uh, So turn with me to Acts 13. I will look at how Acts, or how Paul interprets an Old Testament text uh, as a prophecy of the resurrection. So Acts 13, starting in verse 32. says this, And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So if you've ever wondered about that language in Psalm 2 of the father begetting the Messiah, Here we have a Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of that verse in Psalm 2. So Paul says, what God had prophesied, what he had promised to the fathers, he has now fulfilled by raising Jesus. And what is the text he quotes to talk about what God had promised? Well, he quotes from Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So catch this, according to Paul, 
that was a prophecy of the resurrection of the Messiah, right? What God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is written, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this begetting of the son, according to Paul, was a prophecy of the resurrection. Christ is the the only begotten of the dead or the firstborn of the dead. Um, So now let's turn to Psalm 2 and look at what immediately follows the resurrection. So we're just looking here to see how these are tied together, this concept of death, suffering, and ultimately exaltation. I think this text does it. Uh, Psalm 2, let's look at what immediately follows the prophecy of resurrection. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there's our resurrection prophecy. Look what follows. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So if this statement about the Messiah being begotten was a prophecy about the resurrection, as we saw from Acts, then we see what follows is the exaltation of the Messiah. After dying and rising again, he is given the nations as his inheritance. The ends of the earth are his possession. To return to Daniel 7 and see how this fits, we would see then the son of man who receives dominion, this kingdom, the obedience of the peoples, is something that he receives after death and resurrection, uh, the reward for his sufferings. Hebrews 10, 12 agrees, says this, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So notice how closely the exaltation of Christ is tied to his redemptive work, his cross work. The Son of Man was indeed lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross and he died there, taking the penalty of the sins of his people upon himself. But as was prophesied of him, he rose again, ascended to heaven, and was given his inheritance. He is presently reigning at the right hand of the Father, as his enemies are being made his footstool. And so now that Christ has been lifted up, all will one day see, John 8, 28, and know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now that is not a statement that all of his opponents would come to faith in him after the cross, But rather, it is a statement that one of the functions of the cross is to reveal who Jesus is. Those who do come to know him savingly will do so because of the cross. And those who still reject him in this life, one day will still be forced to kneel and acknowledge that he is Lord. For we see after the cross, he received his kingdom. And we see at the end, uh, Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and where? Under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All will one day see and know that Jesus is who he said he was. All will one day see and know that he is Lord and that what he did and said was according to his Father's will. The fact is, you will bow the knee to Christ. The only question is, will you bow before it's too late for you? Will you bow humbly and in worship? Will you bow in this life and be received as a son? Come to Christ in faith if you have not. Do not die in your sins. Let's continue on, verse 29. Jesus says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Right? In all that he did, Jesus says, the Father was with him. For Christ always did what was pleasing to the Father. Right? So we see through Jesus' ministry, uh, later on as he is abandoned and betrayed by his closest friends, as the fickle followers would turn away from him, as the crowds would turn upon him and a mob would chant for his death, Jesus was never alone. But the Father was always with him, for Christ always pleased the Father. Now that is an interesting reason that Christ gives. Right? Why does he say the Father never left him? For, because, I always do what is pleasing to him. Right? Christ was a perfectly obedient son. He always pleased his Father. Now, what about you? Do you have this same confidence? Can you be confident that God is always with you because you always do what is pleasing to him? Can you say that? I can't. But the good news of the gospel is that the ground of our acceptance before God is not based on our obedience. It is based instead on the finished work of Christ. So by faith we are united to Christ, and it is through our union with him that his death for sin is counted as ours. It is through our union with him that his life of perfect righteousness, his father-pleasing obedience, is counted as ours. So brothers and sisters, you who are in Christ, here is why you can be confident. Jesus says God is with him. The Father has not left him alone, for Christ always did the things that were pleasing to him. If you are in Christ, you too can say, God is with me. He has not left me alone, for Christ always did what was pleasing to him. We can be confident that God will never leave us alone for the exact same reason that Christ was confident the Father would never leave him alone, and that is because Christ was a perfectly 
obedient son. So if Christ could be confident that the Father would never leave him, then if you are in Christ, you can be too. God will never leave you or forsake you. You will never walk alone. He who formed you in your mother's womb watched over you while you grew and at just the right time drew you effectually to his son will never abandon you. Through all the sorrows of this life, he will be there. Through the joys and triumphs, he will be there. To old age and gray hair, he will be there. He has made and he will bear. He will carry and will save. Isaiah 46, 4. God will be there. He will give grace and strength. He will be your comfort, your shield, your strong fortress. Christian, he will not leave you alone. For Christ always did what was pleasing to him. Let's continue on. Verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now that is not the first time that we've seen uh, large-scale positive reactions from the crowds. Uh, John 2 verse 23 says that many believed in him when they saw the works that he was doing. They saw the signs he was doing. Now here it is not miracles that prompt this belief, this response, but rather it is the teachings of Christ. Now unfortunately, as we saw in John 2, many of those who had believed because of the miracles turned out to not be genuine conversions. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, it does not appear much different here in John 8. So verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is it that marks out a true disciple? Perseverance. It is abiding in Christ's word, holding fast, continuing in it. Jesus says that is what a true disciple does. That is the mark of a genuine conversion. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, his teaching. A genuine believer abides. So here is now the test for these new believers. Right? They claim to believe, and so Jesus lays down this benchmark. How may it be proved that they really are his disciples. Not by one profession of faith. Not by claiming to believe for a short time. You know, it's really easy to get caught up in emotion uh, at a rally or evangelistic meeting. It is easy to make a profession of faith when you are in a particularly tumultuous time of your life. But what will ultimately prove or disprove the genuineness of that conversion is whether or not you abide in his word. Once the excitement of the rally wears off, 
the enthusiasm of the people around you is gone, once that difficult time in your life is past and things are back to normal, will you abide in his word? Does his word take root and bear fruit in your life? Now, there are many soils upon which the seed lands. And some of the soils, the seeds sprang up quickly, right? There appeared to be a positive response to the gospel, but then the weeds, the troubles of this life, choke it out, or the sun scorches it, for it has no root. Such are not the true disciples of Christ. The true disciples are the good soil in which the seed takes root and produces a harvest. So brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, examine yourself. Are you a true disciple of Christ? Do you call yourself a Christian? Do you believe that you're saved? Here's the challenge laid down by Christ. True disciples abide in his word. So what does that mean? What is required to be able to say that we are abiding in the word of Christ? Well, firstly, you cannot abide in that which you do not know. Do you know the teachings of your Lord? Do you know his will for your life? Tragically, there are many professing believers who are biblically illiterate. That is, they don't know the scriptures. They haven't studied them. They haven't learned them. They show through their lives that, the, that this word is not something that matters to them. Right? All of us, we will study the things that we're passionate about. Right? We may not call it studying, but we know things. Right? Things that matter to us, we will learn about. Right, how many of you young boys could tell me all the numbers and names of the players on your favorite sports team? Right, or you could tell me all the exact stats, the horsepower, the top speed, uh, the different specs, the price of your favorite sports car. Right, fill in the gap. We all have these areas of knowledge, these things that we are passionate about and we study. Some of you could tell me all about different guns or different animals or different video games. Some of you could tell me about all your favorite movies or books. You could give me facts about different characters and their backstories. But could you list all ten commandments? Do you know what they require, how they apply to your life? Do you know how God wants you to live? Have you studied his word? Do you know his word? Christ said, if you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. It's difficult to abide in something that you do not know. So study the word. Learn the word. Soak in it daily. Right? Avail yourself to the opportunities of teaching. Right? Come to Sunday school, midweek study. Soak in the word. Secondly, in order to abide in the word of Christ. We must not be hearers only, but doers. Right? If you do know the word, perhaps you've studied, maybe you learned much when you were younger, you've come to know a good deal of Christ's word, 
There is still no sense in which you are abiding in the word if you are not obeying it continually. Simple knowledge of Christ's word is not enough. Jesus says the man who hears his word but does not keep it, does not do it, is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. James says that even the demons believe in God, that they believe and they tremble, they shudder. Now we could extrapolate from that and say that they too would likely know the word. Right? They would be familiar with what God has revealed. But the demons can in no way said to be abiding in it. To abide in the word requires more than to simply know it. Abiding in the word requires that we keep it, that we live in it continually. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, James 2.22. In what sense can you claim to be abiding in the word of Christ if you are not living it out? If you have heard and known and claimed to believe but are not living it out, you are not abiding in Christ's word. You have abandoned Christ's word. If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what does Jesus mean there? The truth will set you free. Now that is, of course, true in a general sense. There is no freedom in believing or telling lies. But given the context, what Jesus has just said about being a true disciple, what he's about to say about slavery to sin, I think Carson and others are right to see this as a reference to salvation. Right. So we ask, what is it that we need to be set free from? And that is essentially the question of the Jews in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Right? If Jesus is offering freedom, the assumption is that his hearers don't currently have it. That they are not presently free. The assumption is that they are presently slaves. The Jews take offense at this and declare, we are, we're Abraham's children. We've... We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, as D.A. Carson points out, it is very unlikely that they meant that they have never been in political subjugation. As he writes, there was scarcely a major power whom the Jews had not served, right? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and at the present moment, Rome. But what's more probable is that they meant spiritual inward freedom and privilege, they saw themselves as the sons of the kingdom. They did not view themselves as being needy. And so the implication here that they need to be set free was one that they found offensive. And it is one that continues to be offensive in our day. You may remember a few years ago, there was an advertisement, a, a tract or a flyer that was sent out into people's mailboxes by some enterprising Christian group. Now, I never saw that flyer, but I think it had a basic gospel pitch on it. And this provoked some very angry responses. Uh, some letters to the editor 
were written to uh, Winkler Morden Voice and even brought about an apology from the newspaper. Now, one of the letters to the editor displayed the very same offense that the Jews displayed here. One gentleman wrote, Just because we do not share the same beliefs does not mean that we are immoral and lost in the dark. The very same offense. When we say as Christians that Christ is the way, truly the implication is that those who don't have him are lost. When we say that Christ is the light, the implication is that those who don't have him are in darkness. When we say that Christ brings freedom, the implication is that without Christ, people are in bondage. This is offensive to those who do not believe they need anything. We're not lost. We're not immoral. We're not sin-sick. We're not dead in sin, and we certainly aren't in slavery. We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Hear the answer of Christ. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here's why we must not be afraid to offend so that we would hide the truth. For everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Carson again. Not only does the practice of sin, the Greek is literally the one who does sin. Not only does the practice of sin prove that one is a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. For Jesus then, he goes on, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery to moral failure, to rebellion against the God who has made us. The despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness. An evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. Now, secular culture would have us believe that it is the rejection of God in which there is freedom. I'm sure you've heard the appeal to be set free from the shackles of religion, from these archaic forms of morality. But they have it completely upside down. There is no freedom in sin. Those who reject God and indulge all the desires of their flesh are not free. They are slaves to their sin. They are servants to their lusts. They are not their own masters as they would like to think. They are enslaved to sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Again, look at how upside down this perspective is when you see how the scriptures describe 
those who are outside of Christ. Dead in transgression and sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Slaves to sin. John 8 34. Those who don't have the spirit of God, who have not been born again, cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. They do not have the freedom within themselves to do so. There are these things they cannot do according to the scriptures. Remember John 6, where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Romans 8, 7, and 8, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God-haters, those who reject Christ, those who are still in the flesh, that is, those who have not been born again, have not been indwelt by the Spirit, Scripture says they cannot do certain things. They lack that freedom. They cannot come to Christ on their own, apart from a work of grace. They cannot submit to God's law. They cannot please God. But as we've covered, their wills are constrained by their fallen nature. They are slaves to sin. So see how different the scriptures present it from secular culture. Coming to Christ is not to lose freedom. It is to gain freedom. The new birth involves a miracle in which the Holy Spirit changes us from within. Our wills are set free to truly desire the good, to truly desire God. We are set free from our slavery to sin so that we may now serve our true master. Christ shatters the chains that bound us. Our love of darkness is broken, and we are given the grace we need to honor God in any and every situation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out that you may stand up under it. That is the freedom that Christ gives. Among other things, it is freedom from the power of sin. The enslaving power of sin. The freedom that secularism offers is freedom to serve your lusts. Freedom to remain a slave to sin. Freedom to sink into the bog, to die in your sins, and to let them drag you to hell. That is not true freedom. True freedom is found in knowing the truth. Or better yet, we could say, true freedom is found in knowing him who is the truth. For it is he who sets us free. Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now the Jews thought of themselves as sons. Jesus explains they are actually slaves and have no assurance for the slave has no permanent place in the household. Now the genuine son here is not the Christian, but is Christ himself. 
Jesus says, as the true son, a true inheritor of the household, just as the son would grow and have the authority to release the slaves, so too Christ, the son, has the power and authority to set us free. Christ frees us, as we've covered now, from the power of sin, but he frees us also from the penalty of sin. As we've covered by nature, we are slaves to sin. We love our sin, and so we cannot please God unless God intervenes. But we are also under bondage to the penalty of sin. Think of ourselves as prisoners on death row. Right? They are in bondage. They are shackled down. They are not free to go, but are awaiting this pronouncement of judgment, this condemnation. And so, too, all sinners are deserving of this penalty from God. We are in bondage under the penalty of sin and can do nothing to free ourselves from that sentence of condemnation. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And Christ has indeed freed us from the penalty of sin by taking that penalty upon himself. The Son of Man was lifted up upon the cross. Galatians 3.17, he freed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He bore our curse. He died in our place. Our judge has accepted a substitute who has fulfilled the demands of justice. And now we, guilty prisoners on death row, are offered complete and total forgiveness through Christ. Come to Christ in repentance and faith and watch as the chains fall from your wrists as you are set free from the penalty of sin. For if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The Christian life is freedom. Freedom from the power and penalty of sin. Freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation. And freedom as well. Catch this. Freedom from striving. Freedom from striving to earn what we as sinners could not earn. Those who are in Christ, who believe in him, who are united to Christ by faith, receive his righteousness. As we covered, God never leaves us. For Christ always did what was pleasing to him. God will welcome us as beloved children. For Christ always did what was pleasing to him. God will grant us eternal life, for Christ always did what was pleasing to him. So Christian, when you stand before the Lord and you are welcomed with these words, well done, good and faithful servant, know that it will be simply because Christ always did what was pleasing to the Father. And so you will stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God receives you in Christ. And so coming to understand the gospel is freedom from striving to earn what cannot be earned by sinners. It is freedom from guilt and shame and condemnation as we receive the full pardon purchased by Christ. Freedom from the power of sin to which we were formerly enslaved and free from the penalty of sin under which we awaited condemnation. So my brothers and sisters, live as free men and women. 
Do not go back to voluntarily submit yourself to the shackles which once bound you. Do not live in that from which you have been set free, but be who you are in Christ, free. For if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Abide in the word of your Savior. Amen.